Um, the question is, has your life been affected by suicide, and if so, how? I've had two sisters that have struggled with depression and self-harm, and I've had a cousin who's dealt with it, and I've had an aunt who's attempted suicide several times. You want to help them, but like, how? How do you help someone in that situation? You feel helpless because they feel helpless, and it's just, it sucks. <laughs> When I was 19 years old, I walked in um, on my sister after she attempted suicide. And so that kind of, it was super hard realizing that it, for her it was a very personal battle. No one knew where she was at in life. Um, and so she was battling a lot of demons on her own. When you tell people you're making a podcast about suicide, most of them say something like, oh, interesting. But with some people, there's a pause in the conversation. And for a moment, they study your face as if to ask, can I trust you with this? Then they'll tell you about losing a loved one or a close friend, or in some cases, how they found themselves thinking about suicide once. I had that conversation with classmates and faculty, with the girl I met on a trail to a mountain summit, with my hygienist in the dentist's chair, and even with my own mother. We often think of suicide as something only those with mental illness deal with. And if you don't have a mental illness, you think it'll never happen to you. But in actuality, the CDC says that less than 50% of those who die by suicide had a diagnosable mental illness. Or as Utah AFSP director Taryn Hyatt says, suicide doesn't care who you are, what family you came from, what color your skin is, how much money you make, whether you went to church on Sunday, it, it doesn't matter. It can, it can happen to anyone at any time. None of us are immune. But if suicide isn't just about mental illness or depression, what is it about? In this episode of the Keep Hope Alive podcast, we're going to talk about a psychological theory that breaks down suicide into its most basic parts and brings together all of the previous theories of suicide so you can understand it and use that knowledge to get help from the people you care about. No individual death makes sense. Michael Staley works for the state of Utah as a suicide researcher. Staley is a sociologist, not a psychologist. But collectively, when you put them together, and that's what I do as a sociologist, look for these common themes, we can better understand what's happening. Conducting research on suicide is incredibly challenging. For one thing, the people you're studying are often already dead, so you're left to interview traumatized family members who may have an incomplete viewpoint on what happened. And for another thing, you can't ethically test treatments on live suicidal patients because those treatments might cause them harm or make them more suicidal. We do our best to, though, to, to go back with those limitations in mind of what we won't be able to find out, the things people never said or the the people they never told, and, and put it back together the best we can. Sociology gave us suicide rates, warning signs, and trends, like what days of the week or what months of the year suicide is most common. But what it didn't produce was a deep look into the mind of suicidal people, or a way to predict who would and wouldn't die by suicide. In the late 90s and early 2000s, a young researcher named Thomas Joyner found his calling in suicide theory, or more accurately, suicide found him. His story is an interesting one. Joyner didn't respond to multiple interview requests, but BYU professor Scott Braithwaite did his PhD in Joyner's program, and he co-authored the paper on Joyner's seminal theory. When he started graduate school, he really was studying depression, and it was actually during his graduate school time that his own father died by suicide. He saw it as a point of kind of honor that he needed to go after the thing that got his father. So he began to study, instead of just studying depression, really focusing on suicide. 
Joyner wanted a theory that didn't just look back on suicide in the past, but also helped predict suicide in the future. He wanted to understand suicide inside out and not just outside in. After years of study, he and Dr. Braithwaite and their team proposed a new theory called the interpersonal theory. The theory boils suicide down into three extremely basic, simple parts. And Dr. Braithwaite is going to walk us through each part and explain how it works. The first is what ended up being termed thwarted belongingness. There was a really important paper in psychology that showed that the need to belong is a fundamental human motive, meaning it's not just a nice thing or something that makes your life richer if it's there, that if this need to belong is not met, that it's as distressing to an individual as if other really key needs aren't met, like the need for food or reproduction or things like that. He started to see that a really key feature of thoughts of suicide and the desire for death was a feeling that someone doesn't belong anywhere or to anyone, that there's not a place for them, that they don't have a tribe, they don't have people who have their back. Maybe I was about 20 years old when I first uh, started university and I didn't live on campus, so I was commuting every day, like 40, maybe like an hour and a half there, hour and a half home, and I didn't meet anyone, I didn't make any friends, I had no connection, I was isolated. I actually started having multiple panic attacks every single day. You genuinely feel like you're gonna die. It's probably the worst feeling in the world. I do remember having like a short thought about jumping in front of a subway. I was just like, what is the point of being alive if I'm li like, it, it literally feels like you're dying every day. It was, it was a fleeting thought, but it was like a thought, you know? You can probably think of someone in your orbit right now who might feel disconnected from your community for whatever reason. Maybe it's you. Regardless, feeling like you don't belong isn't uncommon, and neither is the second factor. The second part, perceived burdensomeness. This is the idea that when they're in these states where they're feeling very suicidal, in their minds it feels like their death is of more worth to the people that they care the most about than their life, meaning that the people who they love and that they really care about would be better off if they were gone. So they perceive that they're a burden and that if they were to be gone, that everybody's life would get a little bit better. It's, it's just uncontrollable. It's like a huge weighted blanket of just sadness. And it not only messes with your mind, but your physical strength. Chelsea suffers from incapacitating depression. Nobody understands what you're going through. Do you find yourself thinking or feeling sometimes like you're a burden? It's one of my main thoughts, actually. I sit on the couch and I'm sad. I'm a burden on my husband. I, I, I can't take care of him. I take, can't take care of the house. I'm a burden on my daughter. I'm a burden on my neighbors. I'm a burden on everybody around me. Neither thwarted belongingness nor perceived burdensomeness are mental illnesses. But when you put them together and add a dose of hopelessness, meaning that you don't expect things to get better, it drives suicidal thinking. It's not at all uncommon for people to feel both of those things and to have a desire for suicide. You can almost imagine how, to someone feeling this way, suicide might even sound reasonable or like the unselfish thing to do. The problem, of course, is that these two ideas, these two beliefs, usually aren't true. When we're in a suicidal crisis, our connection to reality gets pretty weak, and we start to believe all of the dark stories that our mind is spinning up. People actually know how to deal with anxiety better than they know how to deal with depression. 
My friend Colleen was the team trainer on my high school football team. Colleen went through her own depressive crisis after high school and experienced suicidal thoughts. Today, she's a nurse in a psychiatric ward. She talks to patients all the time who have recently attempted to take their own lives. They're thinking in this tiny little bubble and they're not seeing the outside world. They'll be better without me. And they're in their own heads and they do something impulsive. And later they often regret it. Maybe about 60% regret it right away. Thankfully they, they have a second chance. Sometimes you don't get that second chance. Millions of Americans think seriously about suicide every year, but only a tiny fraction, less than one half of 1% of those who think about it will actually die from it. What's the difference between those who think about suicide and those who die from it or even make an attempt? There's something else required, something called acquired capability. Suicide is such an unnatural act. It goes against every impulse and every instinct that we have as human beings, just even our reflexes. Like everything is designed for us to live. In order to enact lethal self-injury, it's something that you have to work up to, that you actually have to develop a fearlessness and you have to become inured to pain and provocation and the kinds of things that allow you to actually enact lethal self-injury. Think about that for a moment. What sorts of people have been exposed to more death, violence, or painful self-punishment than others? Studies have found that young people who get in fights or who've been victims of violent behavior or who've even just been exposed to violence are at higher risk for suicide. Doctors and firefighters, both of whom deal with more death in their work, are at higher risk for suicidal thoughts and behavior. Veterinary students who've euthanized animals have a lower fear of death than veterinary students who haven't. Anorexics, who of course deprive their bodies of food, have a much higher rate of suicide than average. But among anorexics who also punish themselves with excessive exercise, the rates are even higher. The history of painful and provocative experiences, even if they're not directly related to suicide, tend to increase that capability. I think that there is something significant about when someone starts to turn on their own self. So something like non-suicidal self-injury, cutting, and then again, previous attempts. It's true that if you review the literature, there are certain um, occupations and certain walks of life and certain experiences that do seem to increase that acquired capability. Until you're in those shoes, you have no idea how bad it is. Dawn was my neighbor years ago. My wife used to go running with her. I still remember one day when the subject of suicide came up, my wife turned to me and said, did you know that Dawn attempted suicide when she was younger? For the longest time, I so wish I hadn't gone through that. But I finally got past the point that I feel so embarrassed that I can't tell the story anymore. You know, it's, that's not who I am anymore. When Dawn was very young, her grandmother used to call her names and make hurtful comments. She'd call me Fatty Donnie, Dummy Donnie. And, and so I think that gave me a bad self-esteem from the beginning of who I was. Dawn's parents realized she needed a confidence boost, and they put her in gymnastics, where she excelled. She quickly made the sport the center of her life and her main source of pride. My coach was like a father figure to me. My gymnast's friends were like sisters. But after multiple back injuries, her parents pulled her out when she was just 13. Yeah, I just remember getting to that point that um, I couldn't take it anymore. And I just, I was so lonely and so depressed. I had a close relationship with my Heavenly Father. And I remember sitting on my bed praying to him, I want to go back to live with you. Logically, I thought it would be fine. And I knew there's a handgun up in my dad's closet. And so I took it down and I started unwrapping it. And then I turned it toward myself. And as I did, the thought kept coming to me, my dad's voice kept coming to me, never point a gun at yourself, not even in play.
Dawn survived. And if this were some kind of made-for-TV movie, that would be the happy ending of an otherwise tragic story. But this is the real world, where all of the neighbors in her small-town community watched her get carted off in an ambulance, where the local paper printed allegations that her sister had been the one to pull the trigger, and where the mean kids at school were ready to share their unsolicited opinions. It got harder, actually. It got harder after than it was before. But I was stronger. I wanted to live. Out of everyone I've interviewed, Dawn is the rare exception, who never sought counseling and never really dealt with suicide again. She realized she wasn't as alone as she thought she was, that she'd be a much bigger burden dead than alive, and that actually dying was much more frightening than she'd ever understood before. What I did learn from that is there were so many good people who loved me and whose lives would change because of what I decisions I make. And even for years after that, if I watched a movie when someone was about to shoot someone, I just shook. I had to leave the room. I couldn't handle it. And even now, I can't shoot a gun. <laughs> yeah, I must have post-traumatic stress. It must be a real thing. But the interpersonal theory isn't just a lens for understanding suicidal thinking. It's also a means for understanding how to prevent it. I think a really important thing to do is to help to connect them with resources that foster a sense of belonging and that foster a sense that they are not a burden. That just using the principles of this theory and trying to increase belongingness and to decrease a sense of burden. And so I think it's so critical to connect with your people, the people who know you best and who love you the most, and to actually kind of have conversations so that you know what the real situation is compared to the situation that feels true in your mind. Because in your mind, you think they hate me. I don't have a place. Everybody here wishes I was gone. And I think that nine and a half times out of 10, that is absolutely not true. That if you actually get good information by community communicating openly with your people, you'll find that it's perhaps depression that is kind of spinning that story in your head and creating those negative narratives and interpretations. And it's critical that you get in touch with reality. Acquired capability for suicide is a little different from the other factors. Joyner believes that perhaps two-thirds of someone's fearlessness about death is genetic, so he speculates that it can't be fixed, even with therapy. But acquired capability isn't just about fearlessness. It's also about having access to a means for suicide. Owning a handgun, for example, significantly increases suicide risk, and research suggests that if you can remove someone's planned means for suicide, you might be able to prevent it. Here's Utah AFSP Director Taryn Hyatt again. You know, we have high rates of gun ownership in the Rocky Mountains. Firearms account for half of all suicide deaths nationwide in the state of Utah. 86% of the gun deaths that occur in our state are suicide. And so it's, it's, it's long overdue that we have those meaningful conversations about, hey, if you own a gun, and we're not saying you can't have it, we're not talking Second Amendment, but you have to store it safely. And safe storage is not on a shelf. It is not under the mattress. It is no access to that firearm. But most importantly, if someone is really struggling with feelings of burdensomeness or persistent depression, you can encourage that person to seek professional help. If we're to the point that you're having thoughts of suicide, this has gone well outside the scope of just everybody has that every once in a while, and we need to seek clinical services and aggressively treat the thing that's making you feel suicidal. If you happen to be a person who's around someone that you suspect they could be having these kinds of thoughts, you should ask them directly, are you having thoughts of suicide? Are you having thoughts of hurting yourself? It will be a relief to them to feel like you're someone who is safe to talk to about that. Your decision to listen and believe and help someone could make all the difference in the world. How's your sister doing now? And, and, and how'd she get to where she's doing better? 
Yeah, so she was admitted into uh, the university hospital. Um, she got some counseling. It was super good, and it's had a big impact since then. It's made me realize like the importance of family, um, keeping people close and making sure they're doing good. Yeah, she's doing really good. This has been an episode of the Keep Hope Alive podcast. Music for this episode came from Lemon Electric Mantis, and Caribou. If you are in a suicidal crisis right now, call 1-800-273-8255 right now and hang in there.